Okay, hello and welcome back to MedHub. Um, today we have a slightly shorter episode tackling respiratory failure for you guys. So just a, just a bit of a preface before we get into this topic. This is a really complex topic and in real life, um, if you did you know, encounter anyone with respiratory failure, that's the kind of thing that you would be escalating straight away to someone who knows what they're doing pretty quickly. Um, so we're just going to cover the bare basics for you guys just to give you you know, a pretty good grounding in some of the physiology and some of the things that you might be able to do to help as med students. So um, we'll quickly introduce ourselves. I'm Michael. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Aaron. And we're going to start you guys off with a case. So a young woman comes into ED with a low level of consciousness. She repon- responds to painful stimuli with a vague groan, but otherwise cannot follow commands. She is making very little respiratory effort and is hypoxic on a saturation monitor. It's a O2 sats finger probe. I don't know why I wrote saturation monitor, but anyway. Um, her mm-hmm. partner reports she was feeling breathless for a while, and then all of a sudden, this happened. Ooh, what happened? <laughs> I, uh, I don't really know. We'll, uh, we'll wait and see as I make up more of the case as we go through this podcast. But anyway, so this lady's probably having a bit of trouble breathing. Do you guys want to talk me through why we breathe? <laughs> why we breathe? For life. Intervention. <laughs> why and why is breathing essential for life? We need oxygen for ourselves to function. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. You know, oxygen goes in, helps the process of cellular respiration or aerobic cellular respiration to um pump through, make ATP, give yourself energy to survive um and it makes carbon dioxide as a byproduct so now that we've talked about why we breathe how do we breathe is it just as easy as sucking air in and out or no well there's a a few different i guess receptors that detect and tell us when we need to breathe um so i guess you could class them as a a central and a peripheral kind so the peripheral kind they are um in the aortic arch and you know the carotid um, arteries, and they detect both oxygen and our pH, which is from our uh, CO2. And then we've also got our central chemoreceptors, which are in the brain, uh, usually the medulla, and they just detect the pH. Cool. So after we, that's sort of like, I guess that's the body's way of keeping track of where like the metabolic state of our acid base balance and our oxygen is at, right? So after that, where do they then signal to? Does they go straight to the lungs or nah? Uh, not necessarily. So they stay in the brain a bit. Um, and you've got the two main areas of the brain which will tell us to breathe. So the medulla, that's like our on and off switch. And then we've got a few pontine centers which help regulate that fine tuning right before it gets sent out to our, our muscles to make us actually breathe. So how does it get to the muscles? What, what does it go through? Um, mainly the diaphragm through the phrenic nerve. So yeah. C345 keeps the diaphragm alive. And then, of course, we've got all the other intercostal and accessory muscles. Yeah, awesome. Um, another key point there, I think, that's just like something that's pretty easy to overlook is that um, obviously between the nerve and the muscle, it's not just like the nerve tells the muscle exactly what to do. You're going to have that neuromuscular junction there, which can also have a few funky things going on. Um, but anyway, we've talked about the muscles that help us breathe. So we've got our diaphragm and our intercostal muscles. Um, if we're, you know, if we're really struggling to breathe, what's going to start to happen? 
Um, we're going to use some of our accessory muscles. Do you so, want to talk me through which ones they are? Um, vaguely remembering, <laughs> mainly from the respiratory exam, when you're actually like looking at a patient and assessing if they're in respiratory distress, of course, you're going to look, are they using the accessory muscles? Um, and so those ones are the subcostal, intercostal and supraclavicular. And you normally say like supraclavicular recessions is what you're looking for, intercostal recessions. Yeah. I think it's also like the scalenes as well. And oh, true. Is it the, is the sternocleidomastoid one as well? Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. As Technically, well that is all muscles. above the clavicle, yeah. so, you know. Super, super <laughs> I don't know muscles. if that counts as superclavicular. Yeah, no, it does. That's cool. Okay. Um, right, so we've talked about the muscles. Now we have to think more about the lungs. So I don't know how much anatomy you guys know who are listening right now, um, but, you know, the lungs don't just stay open on their own, right? Something needs to keep them open and patent because they don't just collapse all the time. Um what is that thing? So we've got the, the two layers of pleura. So that parietal pleura, which is on the outside, which adheres to the chest wall, and our visceral pleura, which adheres to the actual lungs. And between those two pleura, that pleural space, we have almost a negative pressure. So you can almost think of it as a, as a weak vacuum. So that, as well as the actual adhesion between the two uh, pleura, keeps them sticking together so that when your chest wall moves outwards, the lung also moves out with it. Yeah. It also maintains a negative pressure, I think, of like negative something. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's not important. Um, cool. And then obviously, you know, you breathe through your trachea, through your bronchi, through your bronchioles, all the way down to your alveoli. Um, and then the actual patency of that alveolar membrane, those type 1 pneumocytes, is important to allow for gas exchange. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different chemistry wackadoo stuff that goes on there that we're not going to go into today um all you really need to know is that oxygen obviously goes into your body and carbon dioxide comes out um and that's the gist of it um i think the one thing we forgot to mention also that's like pretty important for breathing is that you need an airway to breathe right like if you don't have you know a place to get air in and out of your lungs you're not going to be able to breathe so are um, you referring to our young woman? We've got to check if she has a patent airway. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> but we'll talk about that a bit more later. We're going to push on now. If we go back to the case and we think about, um, okay, some of the clinical features of respiratory distress, what are we going to look for, I suppose, on this, on this young woman? Um, well, we already mentioned those accessory muscles. Um, the other things you would also look for is um, her colour. Is she quite pale, especially looking at her peripheries? Um, I guess also we've got here low level of consciousness, which is also an indicator. The very obvious respiratory rate, actually, is if she's breathing. Back to, back to colour. What is like a scary colour? In terms of, yeah, respiratory distress, it's when it's more blue or even a dark blue, such as a purple. Um, and that's what we call a cyanosis from that deoxygenated hemoglobin. Yeah, it's pretty whack. Um, a few other ones in kids you get as well. Like we talked about those intercostal recessions. They also get like um, nasal flaring. Um, you can also see like a tracheal tug, which is where like, you know, they're like throat sort of bobbing up and down as they're like trying to breathe in. Um Another really bad one is actually paradoxical breathing. So that's where like the chest wall moves in the opposite direction to what you think it and what should. What does that be. indicate? It's a flail chest. 
Yeah, and how can yeah. you get one of those? It's rib fracture in two different segments. Yeah, over a few mm. different ribs also. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's they're pretty much the main ones. Um, if we think about um, what the vitals are probably going to be looking like, what do we think we might see? Um, well, she's got low level of consciousness, so I would think her oxygen saturation is quite low. Yeah. Um, How would her heart rate and respirate and blood pressure probably be? Probably high to compensate. Yeah, generally. Um, yeah, exactly. Generally, they will as well. Um, so a bit of, yeah, tachycardia, tachypnea. Yeah. It, it kind of depends with the tachypnea. Like Aaron was talking about before, people have that drive to breathe centrally, right? So if they are hypoxic, they're not getting enough oxygen. Um, that's generally going to cause either a respirate to increase if you've got if you're hypoxic enough to trigger the hypoxic drive to breathe, or if you aren't able to actually like move your lungs, right? You're not opening and shutting the bellows. You get a buildup of carbon dioxide. Um, which then will increase your drive to breathe as well, both of which can kind of shoot your respiratory rate up a bit until a point where the respiratory failure can start to get so bad that you actually get tired and then your respirate goes down. Um, This is, you know, we're probably more thinking about like an asthma attack or something when we talk about this, but it's just worth keeping in mind that generally elevated respirate is bad and if you've had someone with an elevated respirate and all of a sudden their respirate is going down, that's really, really bad. Um, mm. But this kind of leads us on really well to talk a little bit about respiratory failure now. So does anyone want to take me through the two types of respiratory failure? They are nicely named type one and type two. <laughs> Makes them easy. And type one, I guess, is the most straightforward thinking where you're like, there's not enough oxygen going on. So it's the hypoxic type. And type two is where you have like, typically too much carbon dioxide yeah with with type 2 as well you'll also normally have not enough oxygen like you'll be both hypoxic and hypercapnic Mm. um do you want to talk us through the different ways both of them occur yeah so in terms of type 1 as caitlin mentioned that's the hypox hypoxemic rest failure um a few different causes uh some of the more common ones are the the vq mismatch um or a shunt so it can be, you know, a cardiogenic cause, um, pneumonia, um, ARDS. With that, with that shunt as well, what that means basically is that you've got a right to left shunt. So all that's happening basically is blood is going from the right side of the heart to the left, which means that the blood isn't going past the lungs to pick up the oxygen. That's why you become hypoxic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and just a few other causes of the type 1 includes um, like an atelectasis where you don't have parts of the lung that are actually working um, or even an early stage asthma can cause it. Yeah, the, um, the way I really think about type 1 versus type 2 is that type 2 is um, you've got a failure with the actual mechanics of breathing most commonly. So, you know, if you think about your lungs like the bellows, the bellows aren't really working. Whereas with type 1, you're actually able to get the carbon dioxide out. So the problem doesn't really lie with the bellows. The problem lies with the, like the membrane. Um, if you think about some of the causes of type 1 respiratory failure, um, 
you those can kind of be um like pneumonia you think yeah exactly that's a really good example um the reason that you don't get um a build-up of co2 in pneumonia is because co2 is super soluble it's got a high solubility coefficient which means that it can actually diffuse through the build-up of fluid you get at the bottom of the alveoli in pneumonia um but the oxygen isn't as good as that so you don't get that coming back through which loses out on that yeah, that makes sense. Would that be similar in acute respiratory distress, which Aaron said before, ARDS? Yeah, it's the exact same thing. Acute respiratory distress um, is a same fluid overload on the lung state, I'm fairly sure. Cool, great. Ali's going to fact check that for us. Um, but we'll keep going. So now that we know the two types of respiratory failure um, and now that we know all the different ways someone can breathe, I want to go through with you guys and kind of brainstorm all of the different problems that could cause someone to stop breathing and go into respiratory failure. Okay, so wait a second. We didn't actually give examples of type 2 respiratory failure. Can we give a couple of those? Yeah, so um, the best examples that come to mind would be like something like COPD. Um, also, anything that kind of stops the bellows of your lungs working. So if someone's cut their phrenic nerve, they're not going to be able to actually move the diaphragm up and down. They'll get a type 2 respiratory failure. Um, or if you start actually losing the functions of the muscles, so like a myasthenia gravis or a Guillain-Barre syndrome, anything like that will do it as well. Okay. Or even a drug overdose, which would be quite a common cause, yeah. such as the mm-hmm. opioids. That makes sense. You just can't push that CO2 out. Yeah. So... Now that we've talked about the types of rest failure and we know all the different places um, we can get problems occurring, we're going to go through each of those places, um, you know, each of those parts of the body that are important in breathing, so like the brain, the muscles, the pleura, etc. And we're going to talk about the things that can go wrong um, that might cause respiratory failure. So what can go wrong in the brain that can cause respiratory failure? Drugs. <laughs> yeah, drugs is a really good example. So uh, opioids being the classic that can actually cause respiratory depression. Also, certain things like medullary strokes, um, other strokes to the brain stem can shoot you into a respiratory failure oh, yeah. pretty quickly. So thinking about the muscles, what kind of diseases can occur there? Uh, like you mentioned before, like a fatigability, so a myasthenia gravis, um, or even, I guess, trauma. Yeah. Or post-surgical complication if you sever a peripheral nerve. Yeah, definitely. So... um. Phrenic nerve palsy is a big one. Um, also, any kind of um, neuromuscular diseases, so Guillain-Barre, um, or certain peripheral neuropathies if they target the phrenic nerve as well. Um, also, just like sp- uh, with trauma, like spinal cord injury, if you have a spinal cord injury that's too high and you lose anything above C345, you lose that drive to breathe. So now onto the pleura. What's the, the big money one for the pleura? Uh, tension pneumothorax. Yeah, that's your classic. Um, if you lose that negative pressure, you can't keep your lungs open, they collapse and you don't have the area to diffuse through. Um, alveoli, we've mentioned a few already. You've got your pneumonia, which is classic. Also your, uh, your COPD. Um, in terms of airway, what can we come up with? Do you mean stuff like anaphylaxis? Yeah, where you yeah block, that's a really good one. Have a blockage or foreign yeah. body? Yeah, exactly, definitely. Um, even if we're thinking more distal airways or small airways, what comes to mind? Uh, things like infections. Yeah. Um, any sort of the... Or asthma as well. It's a good one for the distal airway. Um, cool. So what is our immediate management? We don't know, you know, if we go back to the case... 
You've got a woman coming in with an altered level of consciousness who appears in respiratory distress. What are we going to do? Um, I feel like you start off with your doctors A, B, C, D. I guess we're in the hospital, so yeah, less of the perfect. doctors. Hopefully it's safe, but I guess always check. <laughs> I'd definitely get the S in there, though. I'd definitely be sending <laughs> oh, for help. True, yeah. actually. Doctors A, B, C yeah. is actually important. Look around and check it. Check it's all good. Send for help immediately if it's a situation you can't handle. Can't forget to always ask for a response from the patient. They yeah. might be perfectly fine. <laughs> we have actually got a response from her already, though. She responds to pain, but that's it. Hmm. Her GCS is a little bit low. We haven't done a full thing, so we're not too sure where she's at. But So definitely moving on to that airway then, that A of yeah. Doctors ABCD. Yeah, exactly. Um, so with that airway, you know, you can use some adjunct, airway adjuncts, so like Adele's, um, or, you know, thinking about getting a laryngeal mask in if there's, you know, if the patient is so unconscious they're unable to maintain the patency of their airway. Um, moving on to B, what kind of things can we do for their breathing? see if they are breathing count their rest rate because obviously if they are technically breathing but it's like not like they're taking like three breaths per minute that is not enough yeah exactly (laughs) what would what would we do for those kind of people um we'd want to give them a bit of oxygen yeah so probably through a mask to start off with um but i guess the, the big caveat for giving oxygen is that it doesn't work for the shunts that michael mentioned before um and also those copd retainers yeah those um the carbon dioxide retainers for the COPD. So you've got to keep oxygen between, keep their sats between 88 and 92. But you can listen to our COPD podcast if you want to learn more about that. Um, the only other thing is to um, to consider mechanical ventilation or intubation for anyone who's got a really low GCS um, or also like non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. But those are really scary situations to be in, first of all. And second of all, they're not something that you would want to be handling without someone more senior there. (laughs) (laughs) Aaron's airway is patent, so we're all good. Um, But yeah, you know, just make sure in the back of your mind um, that you always have someone there more senior who can manage this because these are always emergencies. Um, So we've also got a few reversible causes that are rapidly reversible and really important. So I'm going to run through with these guys what they are and they're going to give me the treatment. So... If someone has a tension pneumothorax, what do you need to do? An emergency chest decompression and chest tube. Yep, exactly. If they've got um, pinpoint pupils, track marks, and they aren't breathing, what would you do? Well, I'm thinking they've, uh, they're an opioid abuser and they've probably overdosed on uh, opioids. So I'd want to um, reduce that. So I'd give them naloxone. Perfect. If they've got a, if it's a little kid and they've swallowed a Lego. Um, and then they can't breathe because the Lego is in their mouth. What are you going to do? Um, there's a bunch of maneuvers you could do to try and like get it out of there. You might try and dig it out or do a Heimlich or something. <laughs> but normally back the back well. blows. Yeah. The, which one's first? Is it Heimlich? It's back, back blows. blows. Back blows yeah. the number one back now. Blows and then chest blows afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, and then if um, if someone's got a big red rash all over their face, they're struggling to breathe and there's a bag of peanuts empty on the floor <laughs> and they've got a allergy to peanuts, what are you going to do? They just have a little sign on their head that says, I'm allergic yeah. to peanuts. <laughs> um, we're, we're thinking anaphylaxis, so um, give them that uh, adrenaline. Yeah, perfect. I am adrenaline. Um, if you've got someone who's an asthmatic with a silent chest, 
Um, so that's what we talked about before, you know, when they stop breathing. What are you going to do? Uh, give them their bronchodilator, give them some steroids and maybe magnesium. Yeah, perfect. So after we've kind of helped the person initially, the next steps are sort of to figure out a bit more about what has caused this respiratory failure if we haven't got one of those rapidly reversible causes. So um, do you guys want to run me through the kind of investigations we'd want to do? Well, based on our, our differentials at the moment, which is limited essentially just to respiratory failure, um, I'd want to do an ABG, so an arterial blood gas. Yeah, perfect. And the um, the good thing with that is you can confirm whether it's a type 1 or a type 2 because you'll get your PaO2 and your PaCO2. Um, you'll also be able to see a bit more about where their metabolic state is at by confirming if they're acidotic or alkalotic. But if it's a respiratory failure, more likely than not, they'll be in a respiratory acidosis. Um, moving on from that, um, we can also do ECGs, full blood counts for anemia, um, and, you know, just your classic ELFTs and a few other things to see how the patient is doing. Um, I think the big money with this would be a chest x-ray as well. Most respiratory pathologies are going to show up on a chest x-ray. It's fast, it's cheap, and it can get us answers really quickly. Um, otherwise you can also just do an ultrasound. Um, does anyone else have anything to add? What happened to our to a person, our case? <laughs> yeah, so um, the person was actually having an asthma attack. You uh, you figured that out. That's why she was struggling to breathe before. Um, you actually asked the partner for some history. She said she's an asthmatic and hasn't been taking her inhalers. So she came in. You did your assessment. Her airway was patent, so you were less worried about that. Her respiratory rate, like we said, was really high, but all of a sudden she's gone silent. You couldn't really hear air entry on both of her sides. Um, at that point, you got really worried and you called the consultant in. Um, because of her low GCS, they actually ended up having to intubate her um, after obviously trying some bronchodilators, getting her on high flow oxygen um, and you know treatment with magnesium sulfate and some corticosteroids as well. Um, and then she recovered and went home all good. And then awesome. So I can see that doctor's ABCD there pretty clearly. Yeah. Send for help as soon as you're um, not ready for the situation, especially in respiratory distress. Um, her airway no longer was painted, so you intubated um, and gave her that oxygen that she needed and then assessed for causes where we've got asthma from the history. Yeah, perfect. All right. So just to wrap up, let's do a quick summary of the two types of respiratory failure. Um, so remember, there is that type one, which is hypoxic, and it is typically due to a, a problem um, with the actual uh, terminal part of the lungs, such as a, a shunt or a VQ mismatch. Whereas that type two, it is more the hypercapnic, um, and that's a, a failure to be able to breathe, such as the pump failure or the increased dead space. Perfect. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that slightly shorter episode. Bye. 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 We are Australian medical students and this podcast is not a substitute for formal medical education or actual medical advice. This information was mainly sourced from life in the fast lane and up to date, but this is only for educational purposes. We have no conflicts of interest and any resemblance to real cases are purely coincidence.